If I might get you to open up your Bibles, um, we're going to read from John 6, verse 1 to 24, that's on page 1068. So John 6, verse 1, page 1068. All right. Jesus feeds the 5,000. Some time after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down with the disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed those to, to, to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing what they intended to come and make, sorry, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake, where they got him up, got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark. And Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were, where they were heading. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there, and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. And that's where we'll end today. Thank you. Good morning. If we haven't met, my name is Ben. I'm one of the ministers here. Uh, Barry's already prayed, but let's pray again. Father, give us eyes to see and hearts to receive what you want us to learn about your son this morning. For we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Hang on. <laughs> Just turn off the Surf City free Wi-Fi notice. When, uh, some of you guys know that when um, a few years ago I left law to go into ministry, and when I left my law firm, my hilarious friends thought they'd give me a little present 
and it was this. It's Jesus, the action figure. So uh, he's still in his packaging, so I've retained his value. Uh, And he has some pretty cool features. He's got posable arms and gliding action. So he's got little wheels uh, on the bottom of his... uh, of his body, I guess. Um, and it's really cool. So if you wanted to like reenact the scene that we've just read in John chapter 6, he's perfect. So he's got like the arms can kind of raise up and give thanks for the bread uh, and then sort of distribute it out to the crowd. Uh, and then the little wheels would be perfect for just sort of sliding along the sea. Now, of course, that's very far from who Jesus really is. But you know what? Like the more I've thought about it, I've actually reckoned that For a lot of people, this is a great little representation of how people think about Jesus. Uh, For many people, Jesus is someone they just kind of keep in their drawer uh, and they sort of just take him out when they need a bit of inspiration. Uh, Maybe they take him out uh, when they're in trouble and they sort of pray to him. Uh, But then when Jesus says something they don't like, they just kind of, thank you very much, and they just sort of put him back in the drawer of their life, don't they? Jesus, the action figure, of course, is very far from the real Jesus, but it begs the question, how real is your Jesus? Is the Jesus that you believe in the very same Jesus that we read about in the Bible? Well, there's, uh, this is probably one of the best places in the Bible just to test to see and make sure that you really are believing in the real Jesus. John chapter 6, if you've closed your Bible, please would you open that up again to page 1068. Uh, John chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. For in this passage, we're going to see three things. First of all, the real Jesus, his provision is abundant. Secondly, his power is infinite. And thirdly, his purpose is beyond our control. His provision is abundant. His power is infinite and his purpose is beyond our control. So first, his provision is abundant. Uh, If you're new today, we're in the middle of a series uh, in John's Gospel. And uh, we've been saying it's a bit of a biography of Jesus' life, who he is and what he came to do. And one of the things that John loves to point out is that Jesus performed many signs. And you guys know what a sign is, of course. A sign is something that points beyond itself. And in the case of Jesus, a sign uh, points to who Jesus is and what kind of life he offers when he does the miracles. That's what they're pointing to. Okay, so um, what's happened so far in the story is Jesus performed lots of miracles and signs, uh, and he's got quite a great big crowd following him. Uh, So he kind of just wants to get away. You know, we feel like that sometimes when we're so busy. Uh, And in particular, he's really focused. He takes his disciples away, verse 1. Uh, he crosses the shore, so probably, um, he's probably up around here somewhere, I think, uh, and he heads up a mountain and he sits down to teach. He wants to teach his disciples. But then, uh, verse 2, a great crowd of people followed him. Uh, why? Because they, they don't want to be taught by Jesus. They want to just see some cool tricks. Uh, verse 2 says, they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick, and that's why they're there. Now, by the way, this crowd is huge. Verse 10 tells us there was around 5,000 men. Uh, For some reason, that's not counting uh, women and children. So the crowd was probably around uh, 15,000 people, I'm I'm guessing. Uh, And so you could just imagine a pretty decent crowd at Brookvale Oval. Um, And straight away, we see a problem. A crowd this size wants to be fed, don't they? Uh, So there's this huge crowd, and they're out in the wilderness, And they're miles away from anywhere. Uh, So verse 5, Jesus turns to Philip 
uh, because Philip's a local from that area, and Jesus asks, where should we find bread for these people to eat? Jesus is basically saying, hey, Philip, where's the nearest Macca's drive-thru? Um, or if the crowd was from Manly, um, Jesus would have asked Philip, hey, Philip, where should we find a place that sells enough poke bowls uh, for these people to eat? If you don't know what a poke bowl is, maybe? Anyway, they sell them over there. There we go. Philip kind of says to Jesus, um, forget getting enough food to eat. He says, we don't even have enough money uh, for food to buy food. So the disciples kind of look at each other dumbfounded. Verse 8, Andrew comes up uh, with what seems like a pretty feeble solution. He says, uh, there's a guy, there's a boy here, verse uh, 9. He says, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. Now in Australia, um, barley loaves, I looked it up, they're like $6.50. And that's online as well, uh, at an organic food store. So just, this is not like a wealthy boy uh, who can afford to buy food at organic food stores. Uh, Actually, in Jesus' day, um, barley loaves were eaten by uh, the poorest of the poor. Uh, So this boy comes to Jesus. It's not much. And he offers what he has. uh, And Jesus uses it. By the way, um, it's probably worth pointing out that... um, like, it's a bit unclear in the story, but I think we can give Jesus the benefit of the doubt. They're not like, you know, rolling this kid for his food. Um, when Jesus says, let the little children come to me, he's not saying, let the little children come to me so that I can pinch their lunch. Uh, no, when this little boy comes, I think he's coming willingly and he's offering to Jesus all that he has. And this is the fourth sign in John's gospel. Jesus takes this boy's small offering, verse 11. He gives thanks And then he shares it, and it multiplies, and it feeds the 15 or 1,000 or so who were there. And verse 11 shows us the abundance. It says, everyone ate as much as they wanted. Verse 13, in fact, there were 12 baskets filled with leftovers. Now, that's kind of an odd number, uh, but the 12 leftovers uh, baskets represents the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus is saying, hey, I have abundant provision for all of my people. And that's what this uh, first little point is about. Jesus has uh, provision for, he has abundant provision on offer here. And um, I just want to apply this at two levels. One is a very simple level, uh, and the other is at a, at a deeper level. So at the simple level, what Jesus is teaching uh, his disciples and he's teaching us uh, is that Jesus gives us everything we need, doesn't he? That's why he uh, taught his disciples, give us today our daily bread. When we pray that prayer, we're just asking um, Jesus to give us all that we need to glorify him. Did you notice Jesus doesn't pray, um, Father, give us today our daily lobster. Uh, You know, give us today our daily Kobe steak. Uh, Jesus promises that he will always give us what we need, but he doesn't always give us what we want. Uh, When I was a child, all I wanted to do was eat hot chips and ice cream. Um, But thankfully, my parents were good to me, and they didn't give give me what I always wanted. They gave me what I needed uh, to grow up and to be healthy. So friends, Jesus, uh, he gives us all that we need to love him and love our neighbor and make disciples and work in our jobs and raise children and serve the Lord and everything else. He gives us all that we need to do just that. And I think for many of us here in Manly, Jesus actually gives us far more than we actually need to do his will. Uh, He gives us in abundance. And I think, therefore, he calls us to be generous uh, and to share with those in need out of the great riches that he's given to us. 
So that's at one level. That's what this miracle is teaching us. But I think at a deeper level, this miracle um, at least speaks to me that Jesus is the most amazing uh, investment banker you're ever going to meet. I think this miracle teaches us about the extravagant returns of investing in his kingdom. See, this little boy came to Jesus with just a tiny amount. And just look how Jesus multiplied it and made it grow for his purposes. And um, I was reading a a wonderful story about it uh, this week about um, the late, great Billy Graham, who, as you know, he died this week at the age of 99. uh, And he was widely regarded as the most influential preacher of all time. Uh, And it's estimated he reached around 2.2 billion people uh, through his worldwide uh, crusades, uh, as well as his radio broadcasts. And what I didn't know this week is just how fascinating the chain of events was that led to Billy Graham's conversion. So Billy Graham was converted by a guy called Mordecai Ham, true story, that's his name. Um, And it was in this sort of a tent, uh, this evangelistic rally, and Billy Graham and his friends, they were teenagers at the time, and they heard this guy preaching, and they thought, oh, let's just go in and check it out. They popped their head in, uh, and they walked in, and they, they couldn't see any seats. Uh, So they were just about to walk out. And then this guy on welcoming that day, he said, hey, we're so glad you're here. Let me take you to a seat. And they took Billy Graham and his friend to a seat. And the rest is history. So let me just pause. If you're on the welcoming team here at St. Matt's, Rob and the team, um, you guys, I hope you realize just how eternally significant your ministry is here. But that's not the end of the story. Uh, Mordecai Ham was converted by a professional baseball player turned preacher called Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday was converted by an evangelist called Wilbur Chapman, who himself preached to thousands. And in turn, Wilbur Chapman was converted by an incredibly gifted preacher called D.L. Moody, who preached the gospel to around 100 million people in both North America and the United Kingdom. Now, how did D.L. Moody come to faith in Jesus? Well, this is a, here we go, this is fascinating. There's, there was a humble school, Sunday school teacher called Edward Kimball. That's in there. Kimball taught the Bible to a bunch of boys and he prayed for them regularly uh, and, he, and it was like herding cats, so it said, uh, for him. And they were rowdy and he prayed for them and he was concerned for one boy in particular, D.L. Moody, who at that time was 17 and Kimball wasn't getting through to him. So what Kimball did was he, uh, he spent his Saturday morning going to visit D.L. Moody in the shoe shop where he works, stacking shelves. And uh, Kimball went up to him and he said, hey, I'm worried about you. I want to talk. And that very morning, Kimball led D.L. Moody to Christ. And I just think, isn't that amazing? <laughs> like, when you trace it all back, the reason why 2.2 billion people heard the gospel through the preaching of Billy Graham, was because in 1854, one man, Edward Kimball, decided to be intentional and invest his Saturday morning talking to a teenager. Wasn't a huge sacrifice. He gave up maybe reading the paper or playing sport that morning, but just look what Jesus did with it. Friends, let me encourage you, give your time and your talents and your treasure, even the little that you have to Jesus, and just stand in awe of what he can do with it, to multiply it and make it grow in abundance. 
Now, I just want to be really clear. Jesus doesn't promise you that he'll give back to you materially in abundance uh, in this life, but he does promise you that one day you'll share in his joy in abundance by seeing what he does with your gift in growing his kingdom for his glory. As he says, come and share in my master's happiness. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's what I want to hear. I don't know about you. That's point number one. Jesus' provision is abundant. Point number two, his power is infinite. Jump with me down to verse 17. It says that when the disciples got into a boat, uh, they set across the lake for Capernaum after Jesus had fed the crowd. Now, so I think they're, um, so that I think they're around here. Now they're heading back to Capernaum uh, across the other side of the lake. Verse 18 says, A strong wind starts howling and the waters grow rough. Now, that's frightening enough. In ancient times, uh, the sea represented chaos and death. Verse 19 uh, says they're about three to four miles uh, off the coast, off the shore. And basically, that's the death zone, um, that far out. Uh, I'm sure back in those days, they weren't like practicing ocean swims. Like I'm sure they weren't you know, meeting on Saturday mornings to go do the bold and the beautiful. Um, and at the same time, of course, you've got to remember there was no Westpac rescue helicopter. So basically, you know, if their boat capsizes in this storm, they're gone. There's no way they're making it back to shore. So the storm was terrifying enough, but John doesn't even mention their fear of the, the, the wind and the waves. What really frightened them, verse 19, is that they saw Jesus outside the boat walking on water. Now, I reckon this story is so familiar to most of us that we kind of miss just how terrifying this would have been. Um, it's a little bit like, um, you know those pictures you see of uh, Noah's Ark with, you know, all the animals, happy, you know, rainbowy, smiley faces? Uh, and Noah, of course, is looking, you know, uh, awesome as well. Um, but what we actually forget when we see these pictures is actually the story of Noah's Ark is all about God's burning anger, his wrath at human sin. And the story reminds us that, that the whole world came within a whisker of being wiped up by God in his anger and our rebellion. Um, and so a little bit like that, I think it's easy just to read uh, Jesus' story of uh, walking on water and assume he's just doing some sort of cool party trick to show off to his friends. But remember, this is the fifth sign that Jesus performs in John's Gospel. And the sign, remember, points beyond itself. It teaches us about who Jesus is and the life that he brings. And uh, the Old Testament makes clear that only God has power over nature. Only, only the God who gives life has power over the sea, which represents death. So, for example, uh, in Psalm 77, we read that the waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. And then verse 19, your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. Friends, so if Jesus did really walk on water, do you know what that means? It means he's God. You see, if only God can suspend the laws of gravity and walk on water, um, or rather only God can suspend the laws of gravity and walk on water, and that's because only God sustains uh, the laws of gravity and prevents uh, and, and causes you know, people to fall through the water when they try to stand on it. If Jesus can walk on water, it means he is God. It means although he's fully man, he never ceases to be fully God. 
And what's amazing, um, you know, maybe we're thinking, well, how do we know he's not just a man and, you know, maybe he was used by um, God like a puppet or something like that, walking across the face of the water. Well, I think the clue here is in verse 20 that shows we, we're just not given that option to interpret. So when Jesus approaches the boat, verse 20, he says to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Now, John makes the, I think it's pretty uh, clear from John, they, they already recognized Jesus. Verse 19 says, uh, they saw Jesus approaching the boat and they were frightened. So I don't think, it, look, it is possible to translate, it is I, oh, hey guys, it's me. Um, but I think there's at least a double meaning here. In, in the, it's not so clear in the English, but in the original language, what Jesus literally says is, I am, fear not. Now, you may be wondering, why is that so significant? Well, because in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses comes face to face with God in the burning bush, when Moses realizes he's talking to God, he falls down in fear and he hides his face. And he asks God, he says, who are you? He says, what is your name? What should I tell the Israelites who sent me? And this is what God says. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And in this passage, all, and all through John's Gospel, in particular, for example, we'll see next week, Jesus says, I am the bread of life, I am the true vine, and so on. Jesus is claiming the divine name, I am. And if Jesus was just a man, that would be blasphemy. But Jesus really is God, and all the writers of the New Testament understand this. You see, uh, in Colossians chapter 1, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, and in Him all things hold together. Likewise, Hebrews 1 verse 3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. So, of course, Jesus can walk on water. He is, as it were, the symphonic conductor of the winds and the waves. He is the sustainer of the stars in the sky he powers the sun and keeps the planets spinning in their orbits. Jesus merely speaks and flowers bloom and crops grow and lions hunt and birds migrate and whales breach and babies are born and workers toil and couples wed and the earth turns and there is evening and there is morning and it's all because of him. Yes, he's that powerful. Don't you see Jesus is the God of infinite power? And if that's true, let me just apply this for a second. If Jesus really does sustain everything, then why is it that all too often we treat him as our personal butler? I don't know about you, but uh, all too often I come to Jesus with kind of like a shopping list uh, of things for him, and I say, Jesus, please do this, Jesus, please do that. Now, I want to be clear, Jesus does love to give us good things. But my question is, when was the last time you came to him in awe and fell at your knees, as it were, and just say, I praise you, Jesus, I love you, Jesus? When was the last time you earnestly prayed, Jesus, not my will, but yours be done? Your will is good. I trust you. 
Although Jesus' power is infinite, point number two, and we can ask him for anything. Point three, his purpose, to a very large extent, is beyond our control. In the world today, um, there are a lot of different opinions about who Jesus is. Uh, and even for Christians, uh, we have a tendency to, I think, try to kind of mold Jesus into whatever shape we want him to be. So, for example, uh, there's Guru Jesus, uh, and he's the guy we go to for a bit of inspiration and advice. Uh, there's BFF or uh, Buddy Buddy Jesus, and he's the guy we go to for uh, some affirmation and love. Uh, there's Happy Happy Joy Joy Jesus, and he's the guy we go to when we want a bit of a spiritual high. Uh, there's Emergency Rescue Jesus, and he's the guy we go to when we're in desperate need. Uh, and then there's Political Mascot Jesus. Uh, and he's the guy we turn to when we, wanna, when we want him to endorse a political cause we're passionate about. Now, in particular, um, the crowd in this story, they're not dealing with the real Jesus, and they want that last one. They try to mold Jesus into a, a bit of a political mascot. Look at verse 15. When the crowd saw the feeding miracle, they intended to come and make him king by force. Now, I can't help but think of uh, Monty Python's The Life of Brian with the, the crowd coming to Brian to try to make him the Messiah, um, and to which his mom replies, he's not the Messiah, he's a very naughty boy, uh, and the crowd's very disappointed. Um, and of course, Brian isn't the Messiah, so it was right for him to refuse that title. But what about Jesus? Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised king of the Old Testament. Uh, and yet, what does he do? He refuses to be crowned by them. Verse 15, he withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Now, for a long time, I've wondered about this. Jesus, come on, if you are the king, just man up. You know, just let them crown you and just get on with being king. But the clue to why he doesn't do that is there in verse 15 again. Uh, it says they intended to come and make him king by force. Now that word uh, means to, to seize something suddenly so as to gain control. Do you see? The crowd's trying to control Jesus. Uh, they think that if they make Jesus king, they're going to set him up and in direct conflict with the Roman Empire and with the empire's puppet king, Herod, and they're going to force Jesus to become essentially the leader of a guerrilla war. Uh, they're going to try to manipulate Jesus uh, into trying to force the Romans out of Palestine. And then Jesus is just going to go down in history as another failed revolutionary. But that's not Jesus' purpose. Jesus' purpose is way more important than freeing the Jews from the Romans. And we get a clue uh, to his purpose in verse 4. See there. John goes out of his way to tell us that the Jewish Passover festival was near. Now, why does uh, John give us this little bit of detail? Well, it's because he wants us to read this whole passage that we've just read in light of the Passover event. So what was the Passover? Well, uh, in case you don't know, the Passover was a festival that celebrated God's rescue of the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And it was perhaps the most defining event in Israel's history, because it was when God sent Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh kept saying no, God kept sending plagues, Pharaoh kept saying no again, until finally God told the Israelites, if you trust me, sacrifice a lamb. If you trust me, paint the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of your house. For that night, 
God sent an angel to the land of Egypt and he killed the firstborn son of every family in Egypt from the son of Pharaoh all the way down to the son of the poorest person in the land. And the only families that God spared were those who trusted him and put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. The angel of death passed over those houses and the families were saved. And that's why it's called Passover. By the way, what happened after the Passover? Well, of course, God led his people into the wilderness and they walked through the Red Sea and then he fed them with manna from heaven. Now, does that sound familiar? Is that not what we see in this story, the, the fourth and the fifth sign? Jesus walking through the sea, Jesus feeding the 5,000. Jesus does these things because he's reenacting the events of the Passover and Exodus stories. Because he's revealing his purpose. Why did Jesus, why did the Son of God become a man? Well, early in John's Gospel, John sees it clearly. He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the true and better Passover lamb who takes away our sin. Look again at verse 20 with me. How is it possible for God to come near to sinners in the boat? How is it possible for the Holy One of Israel, the great I Am, to come to them and say in the same breath, don't be afraid? How is that possible? It's only possible because Jesus is the true and better Passover lamb. He is the firstborn of Israel and he dies on the cross so that his people who are sinners can go free. And his purpose continues even today. He calls us to love him and serve him and he calls us to spread the good news of his salvation so that as many people as possible can share in the forgiveness and the life that he offers through faith in him. That's his uncontrollable purpose. And his focus is razor sharp and he won't be shaken and he won't be manipulated and he won't be forced into doing anything else. Most of you guys know I'm um, very happy already. I've just started, but you guys have already figured out. I'm more than happy to be real uh, up the front. And so I'll, I'll, I'll be real again today. After I left uh, my law firm 11 or so years ago, um, I'm going to be honest, life got worse. Uh, life got harder, at least, uh, for me, rather than better. And over the years, I've tried to bargain with God. Do you know what I mean? I've tried to barter. Uh, I've tried to sort of, you know, manipulate God. You know, God, if you give me X, I promise to do Y. You know, but of course, it doesn't work does it? Um, Jesus can't be controlled. Spiritually speaking, I, wanted, uh, I just wanted, you know, hot chips and ice cream, <laughs> but that's not what Jesus has given me. And you know what? Looking back, I'm so thankful that he sits on the throne and not me. I'm so grateful he's, he's given me what I needed and not what I thought I wanted. Because looking back, I'm, I'm just so thankful that, you know, if my life had turned out according to my plan, quite frankly, I would not know the depth of Jesus' love. Uh, I think at best, I'd be a shallow Christian, and at worst, I wouldn't even be a Christian. And this passage shows us that the crowd 
is likewise trying to manipulate Jesus. Verse 14, they're just not dealing with the real Jesus. Have a look with me. Um, They recognize he's the prophet that Moses wrote about in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. God said he would raise up a prophet like Moses. But what the crowd refuses to accept is that God also said, you must listen to him. They're not listening to Jesus. And in fact, when Jesus says that he is the great I am, what he's saying is that we don't get to decide who he is. We don't get to mold him in our own image. He is who he is. That's what it means. That's what his name means, I am. And he reveals himself by his words and actions. And in other words, we can't crown Jesus by force. We can't mold him to be how we want him to be. He is our God. He is our King. And he lovingly molds us how he wants us to be. And I know for most of us, that's frightening. There's a place uh, in the wonderful uh, children's book by C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, uh, where um, Susan, one of the children, is told about Aslan. Aslan. Uh, she's told he's a lion. She's told he's the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. And she's shocked. And quite frankly, she's frightened. And she asks, is he quite safe? And do you remember how the, the character Mr. Beaver replies, safe? said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And later in the story, Mr. Beaver adds, he is not like a tame lion. Friends, that's the real Jesus. He is not a tame lion, but he is good. So I'm going to ask you again today, how real is your Jesus? If he's small, and controllable like this guy if that's the Jesus you believe in I hate to tell you but that's not the real Jesus you know chuck him out as it were for the real Jesus is the God of abundant provision he's the Lord of infinite power he is the great I am he's the prophet to whom we must listen he's the king we can't control but his purpose for us He's eternally good. That's the real Jesus. That's the Jesus of the Bible. And have a look again with me at verse 21. If you are willing to take this Jesus into the boat of your life, he doesn't promise your life will be easy, but he does promise he'll get you there safely, eventually, to the heavenly shore. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for any false beliefs we've nurtured about Jesus. Help us to see in Scripture Jesus as he really is. Help us to see him more clearly, love him more dearly, and follow him more nearly. And we ask that for Jesus' sake. Amen.